Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. My new record is Playing It Forward, and you're listening to my good friend and host, Robert Miller's podcast, The Follow Your Dream Podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. My name is Robert Miller. I am your host. I'm very pleased to tell you that my band, Project Grand Slam, will be performing a benefit concert on Tuesday, August 17th in Lenox, Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Hills, for Shakespeare and Company, a premier Shakespearean acting troupe, will be appearing in the Tina Packer Theater starting at 8.30 p.m. If you're in the area, please come out and see the band, and you'll be supporting a great cause. For tickets, just go to Shakespeare.org. My guest today is Jeff Lauber, a superstar of music since the 1970s, when he first formed the Jeff Lorber Fusion, which was a pioneer in jazz fusion music. And he goes with that band through today with his, he's got a new album called Space Time, which we're going to talk about. He's a Grammy winning keyboard artist, composer, producer, programmer, session player. He does everything. I am thrilled to have him as my guest on this episode. And in the second half, we are going to do another song fest, something I absolutely love to do with my musical guests. We're going to play some of his recordings that are representative of the breadth of Jeff's talents. And we're going to talk with him about them and you'll get the real inside story. That's what everybody wants. My featured song in this episode, which you're hearing underneath this introduction, and you'll hear it at the end as well, is called Spring Dance, which I wrote for Project Grand Slam's 2012 album of the same name. I chose this song because it's also a jazz fusion song. That's my background, too, and we're going to talk about that. And it's an upbeat kind of driving song, and I think... Personally, it's got a Jeff Lorber kind of vibe. I hope you agree. So, Jeff, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. You bet. You know, with my guests like you, I like to go back to the beginning and kind of talk about your formative years. So did you have a dream when you were young to be a musician? Was that what you wanted to do? Well, I, I, I always loved music. I was I was into it. I had a natural talent for it. You know, I grew up in a in a um, house where there was a lot of music happening. My mother was a accomplished piano player. I had two older sisters that were taking piano lessons, and I got in really early. I started taking lessons at four, and uh, I just it's just something I I I always love to do. And I played in bands. And I guess the moment when I really sort of focused specifically on you know, thinking like, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life was when, you know, when I was a junior or senior in high school and, you know, every, all my friends were all kind of getting ready to, to go to apply to college, you know, college and figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. And I, I just had this idea. I don't really just want to be like my friends and just go to a liberal arts college 
and f figure out then what I want to do. It's like, I really like music. I think I'm going to go to, to music school and I'm going to focus on that. So that's when I, that's when I really kind of decided that that's what I really wanted to do. All right. When you were, when you were a teenager, were you playing rock and roll like everybody else? Yeah. Well, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, you know, R and B music was a pretty serious influence. So I played in, I mean, you know, play, you know, when you're playing in bands, when you're, um, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, you play popular music, of course. Right. You know, whatever is happening. But it, I think, you know, in Philadelphia, a lot of the popular music was very R&B based because that's what was on the radio there. And there was, you know, there was, um, you know, Gamble uh, and Huff, right? There was Gamble and Huff. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Before Gamble and Huff, there was Cameo Parkway, which was another Philadelphia label. Yeah, right, right, right. That a lot of great music came from. And, and um, in fact, I even knew uh, a guy that, you know, I, I was so young and I didn't know that much about music and the music business. But a guy named Bernie Lowe, who was one of the writers, producers, and, and, uh, and one, a big part of Cameo Parkway was sort of a friend of my, my parents and I got to know him a little bit and I asked him a few questions about the music business. You know, we, I didn't get into it too deep, but, you know, I was always interested in music and, um, you know, where I went to high school, Cheltenham high school, that's where the Brecker brothers went to high school. They were about four years older than me, four, four and five years older. And even at that, you know, at that time they were already kind of superstars in the high school. Like, like people had heard, you know, they, they had a reputation as being great musicians. And, uh, well, the dad was, was a band leader too. Oh, I didn't know that. And, uh, so he was, he was sort of a highly esteemed band leader in the, in the area that would play at weddings and different functions and stuff. But, uh, you know, so when the first Blood, Sweat and Tears album came out and Randy was one of the members of the band on the Blood, Sweat and Tears album. You know, that was like a big moment. It's like, wow, somebody from Cheltenham High can make a made record it. and be on an album. <laughs> and, you know, and the funny thing is, one of my absolutely best friends in the world now is Bobby Columbia, who was the leader of that group. And it's just it's just funny that it, it started out. And actually, you know, another one of my really close friends is a guy who I bought his first my, one of my well, my very first 45 that I ever bought was The Lonely Bull by Herb Albert. Herb Albert. And I'm very close buddies with Herb. And I work with, I, you know, he just called me yesterday. I'm working on something for him right now, actually. So um, interesting. So it's, it's just funny how that works. But um, but yeah, I, I was always interested in music. I didn't know what would happen. I just I just sort of assumed that, well, if you know, if I go to music school and I work really hard, I can be some kind of professional musician. And maybe like when I'm 40 or 50 years old, maybe I'll, I'll arrive at a place where I'll be really good and maybe I'll be considered like a, like one of the top piano players around or something like that. So that was sort of my, my thought process. Well, it worked out pretty well for you then. Well, it happened a lot sooner than that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think, I think the biggest, uh, the, the biggest reason why that happened was because I ended up moving to Portland, Oregon after, after, uh, you know, my time in Boston. And it turned out that that was just a great town musically. There were lots and lots of places to play. There were quite a few excellent musicians to play with. And the main reason why I became a band leader was really just because all these other band leaders that I was working with had done such a bad job of, you know, taking advantage of the situation that was there in that city. So I just, I just decided that like, I got to be a band leader because like these people I'm working for are idiots that, you know, they're not taking advantage <laughs> of this great situation where you have all these clubs and taverns 
that have live music original, you know, that have uh, local bands, so many places to play. And I came from Boston where there's practically no places to play. You know, Boston's a really tough town to find places to play. You were in Boston uh, when in the seventies? I'm assuming. Well, I, I yeah, and I I went to to uh, Berkeley for a year in the summer, like seventy seventy one approximately, and then I stayed there for a couple more years. I studied at Boston University a little bit, and I studied privately with Madame Shelov and a guy named Alex Seelan, who were great teachers, and I played in the band. You and I overlapped in Boston because I was in Boston at that time. And that was the era for jazz fusion. I mean, you know, I came out of kind of a British invasion background. That's that's the music that I listened to when I was growing up. Cream, Hendrix. Well, I like that too. Believe me, I was listening to that music also. I'm and just saying do. that was my, that was my stuff. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, Weather Report comes out and Maha Vishnu and all those right. fabulous groups in the 70s. And that was it. I jumped in and that's kind of what you did as well. You, you became infused with that fusion stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So when, when were you in Boston? What were you doing? Well, I went to college undergraduate at, at BU and then oh, I was okay. playing, I was playing music as much as I could, you know, Paul's mall, Lenny's on the turnpike, all the different bands there. So what, what years were you there? Were you there? I was in Boston from 68 to 75. Wow. Okay. So we totally uh, we were there at the same time. Yeah. Well, you know, my band, the, which was called Saloon, was like the house band at the Oxford Ale House in Cambridge. I don't know <laughs> if you ever like stopped by the Oxford Ale House. Of course we went to the Oxford Ale House. My band was called Segov because uh -huh. our keyboard player was named Segov and a guy named Anton Fig was my drummer. Oh, wow. Well, that's not, that's not so bad. But no. another, you know, we played, man, we played all the clubs in Boston. We played, you know, Bun Ratties. And uh, I, can't, I can't remember a whole lot more of names of clubs. But we also played, in the wintertime, we played all the ski resorts. And we played, uh, in the summer times, we played all the, what they called boogie palaces back then <laughs> on the shore. And uh, that was a good experience. I mean, you know what? I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure... As you know, when, when people say, like, what should I do to become a better musician? Like any gigs that you can get, period, as as quickly and early as possible are are valuable. You know, learning repertoire of practically any style and analyzing music and learning parts and learning how to stand up in front of a crowd and entertain people. I mean, that there's nothing better than that, you know, for, for giving you some some. Uh, you know, some stuff that you can use later on if, if, uh, if things you, you have even more opportunities. Well, I found that fusion era that we're talking about to be just a, a wonderful era. And for some reason, a lot of the fusion music got a bad rap. And I never understood that because to me, it had the power of rock, but it had that improvisation and feel of jazz. And the groups that were around in that era were just magnificent. I'm sure you would agree. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously there was, you know, there's a lot of people that had a stake in the status quo as far as bebop. And when, so when all of, when all these musicians started making this music, that was quite a bit different from bebop and a lot more adventurous, you know, guys like Leonard feather, they would just get like freaked out and, you know, and uh, so, so yeah, so there was, there was, there was a big pushback from the, you know, bebop jazz police establishment against something new. And, you know, but that happens all the time. You know, there's, there's this famous book by Nicholas Slinipsy called The uh, Thesaurus of Musical Invective, 
that is nothing but a collection of bad reviews <laughs> of composers from the time of Beethoven until Stravinsky. <laughs> and then and then there's like an index in the back because a lot of the reviewers used a lot of the same disses for different composers, like over and over again in different periods of time. But uh, yeah, I'm but that's going to have that's to get that book. That's, that's, that's fascinating. But before you go on, yeah, so I got to ask you. So you were there when I was there. So did you see Miles Davis at the Boston Tea Party when he played there with um, with uh, Chicory and and uh, Keith Jarrett in the band? Of course I did. Jack DeJohnette. Of course I saw Miles at the Boston Tea the Boston Tea Party. For anybody that was not from Boston, that was the rock club in Boston. It was right opposite Fenway Park. And uh, I've told a, a couple of times stories about another dive, which you might remember, that was in Kenmore Square called the Psychedelic Supermarket. Oh, that I didn't know. You got me beat there on that one. This place was more like a <laughs> bomb shelter than it really was a club. Yeah. They had amazing groups playing there. I had Steve Katz from Blood, Sweat and Tears on the show and Jim Fielder as well. And I was talking to Steve about you know, playing at the psychedelic supermarket. Even he could oh, wow. remember that one. Well, you know, I grew up in Philly and we had our version it was called the Electric Factory. Right. And I saw Blood, Sweat and Tears open up for Vanilla Fudge at the Electric Factory like a week after David Clayton Thomas joined the band and they blew Vanilla Fudge away totally. I can imagine. And I also saw I also saw the, the, the first time that The Who came to America playing in this 500 seat club and Pink Floyd. <laughs> you know, back in the day, the promoters were terrific, in my opinion. They would mix groups, like you just said. You know, you'd have Miles playing together with The Who or somebody right. like that. And it was fantastic for everybody because the kids that didn't know about somebody like Miles, they got exposed to him. Right, that's right. And for Miles, it was opening up a whole audience that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And for some reason nowadays, promoters just want to make everything homogenous everything has to fit together perfectly and that's not something i really like well i think you know well also back then you had you know radio it started out as am radio and you had top 40 and that's all that was basically it for am radio and then you had fm radio like these little fm stations start got started and then they had something called aor radio which which meant album oriented rock and that means they could play album cuts and they would play whatever they wanted. Right. They would play John Coltrane, Led Zeppelin. My early Jeff Lover Fusion records got played on AOR radio, which was fantastic. So that's the way radio was being programmed. That's the way concerts were being programmed. Everybody, you know, it was the early days of, of, of music as an industry. Right. And everybody was learning. It was the early days of, of sound reinforcement. You know, one of the one of the very first shows I ever went to in a big arena was a group called Ten Wheel Drive at a place called the Spectrum, which was a hockey rink in Philly. And the, the sound reinforcement was just abominable. You, all you could hear was, you know, like a, 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 a rumor of the music, <laughs> right. you know. But I also I, I, I also have to say I was lucky enough to go to the original Woodstock. And that was that was one of the few concerts of that era that they actually did. The sound reinforcement was fantastic at Woodstock. All right, we got to talk about that. Were you there for the whole concert or just I was for there for the whole thing. I was there for 3 days including Jimi Hendrix on the last day. I got to see. Oh boy. I was playing that summer in a show band at one of the hotels in the Catskill Mountains where that Wow, took so you place. were there. 
Well, here's the deal. I, I bought tickets. I bought a ticket for one night because I had to play the show. So I could only go during the day. And uh, who knew that they were going to go through the night? So it turns out that on Sunday morning, we drove there through the back roads because we knew how to get there. I had been there the week before when they were setting up the stage. It was a spectacular you know, view. And I got there just as Joe Cocker was going on the stage. Wow. And, you know, the sun was up. It, it was just fantastic. So you were one of the 10 million people that claimed to be <laughs> yeah. at Woodstock. <laughs> That's fantastic. Have you I been back there at I, all? I still have my ticket. You know, I have, I have it framed. And, uh, and I remember when I got there and I saw that everybody was, was getting in for free, I was thinking, oh, I'm, I was so <laughs> stupid to buy a ticket. I didn't need to buy a ticket. But now I have the ticket, you know, so I, I, I actually – you know, one out on that one. Oh, good for you. You know, that was a wonderful experience musically. There was so much going on. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. All right. So I want to start with the the Jeff Lauber fusion. This is 1979. You put out your first album. What was it like at that time musically? I think the first record came out in 77, if I'm not okay. mistaken. Does it, does it say 79? I thought so, but... Rain Dance was, yeah. was 79, and we're going to do that one during the, uh, during the song fest. Yeah, so what happened was I was living in, I, I ended up moving to Portland, Oregon, and I, I had my band, and, uh, I, and I was teaching, I was also teaching at this little community college, and, uh, and I was teaching jazz, just a couple classes, like jazz band and, and vocal jazz, and one day, one of my students said, hey, we have some studio time, would you like to come with us? and watch my band record some stuff. And I said, okay. And I went, I went over and they were having a tough time getting things organized. So I saw, I sort of helped them arrange the music that they were working on. And there was a guy there named Dave Dixon, who was an engineer. And uh, he noticed that it seemed to him, it seemed like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and so after the session, he asked me if I wanted to, you know, come in and do some demos in the studio. Cause he was learning how to engineer and I could learn how to record. You know, back then, if you got to get into a recording studios, like unless you had that hundred dollars an hour to, to pay for the studio and to buy tape, you know, it's it was impossible. Like for, you know, for most people, it was impossible to get into a studio. So that I look at that as my big break because that really made that was an incredible opportunity. And I got in there and um, I made a bunch of demos and I sent the demos out to some some labels and um there was this one little independent label called Inner City Records that before that, they, this guy from Long Island named Irv Kratka had this business called Music Minus One, where he would sell records that would have, uh, you know, sheet music inside. You could put the records on, like if you're an oboe player and you want to play some classical piece and you could play along. And that was a that was a happening business for him. It was doing well. And then he picked up a jazz label from uh, Scandinavia called Enja that he distributed. Somehow he got the, he must've gone to meet him or something and got the, and, you know, figured out how to, how to distribute uh, a European label. And then he started his own label, Inner City Records. And I was one of the first people that got signed. And um, the budget was, was, you know, practically zero, which was nothing. <laughs> but, you know, it really, but we really did well in the Pacific Northwest where we were playing. You know, because we were playing like my group was playing all over the place. We were playing in, uh, you know, Seattle and Spokane and Corvallis and Missoula, Montana. You know, we're just the, the Northwest. That was it. That's as far as we would get. But also we were lucky because back then they had something called one stops 
where independent labels would sell their records to stores. And there was a guy at this one stop that I'm still friends with, Michael Lenahan, that decided, hey, I like this, this Jeff Lorber Fusion record. I'm going to work this record and try to make it happen. So in, in, contact, in, in concert with the gigs that we had, he put together in stores at different record shops in different towns to, and the, the record stores would put the record on sale. People would, they'd advertise the in-store. People would buy the, the, the record and we would sign them. And, uh, and I think that made a big difference too. That was, and then ra- we had radio support too from the AOR stations, which had big listenership. So that was huge. So anyway, so after the first record came out, then I had more money for the second record. And right. um, let's segue from, because that's a great story about how you got started, but I want to get into the song fest now, because we're going to cover the, okay. the same era that you're talking about. Okay, so Jeff and I worked through and we picked out a handful of songs that I think represent, you know, as I said before, the breadth of his talents. And the first song that you're now hearing underneath my voice is, I believe, from 1979. It's your song called Rain Dance. You were the composer, producer, arranger. You played the synthesizer (laughs) and the Rhodes. So you did yeah. everything on that. Tell us a little bit about that song and that experience. Well, that was our third album. And it was actually a, the, what I was just about to get to was, was after the second record came out, I was able to get uh, Chick Corea and Joe Farrell on that album. And the fact that those guys were on their album, we were we sort of burst out into national consciousness. And we got played ar- around the country on jazz stations. And so after the after the second album, then all of a sudden major labels wanted to uh, sign us. We signed with Arista because they had a lot going on. And so our third album was our first for Arista. It was called Water Sign. So yeah, so we recorded. I recorded at the same sixteen track studio that I did my first two albums at, which was the same place where, you know, I I went over to help my student from the school with his with his recording session. And uh, and but this time, I, this time I, I was able I had the budget to um, to go to L.A. and mix it in L.A. And you were talking about like, you know, Weather Report. You know, I was such a fan of Weather Report that I just figured I'm going to go to to um, Devonshire Studios where Weather Report re- recorded Heavy Weather. And I'm just going to hire. I forget who how I I don't know if I can't remember if he was just a house engineer or if the engineer was recommended in some other way, but but we mixed the the um, Water Sign album at, at Devonshire. And one thing notable about that experience was that I got to meet Jocko, was there. And uh, that was in the early days of, you know, Jocko was, you know, young and, and, you know, just really super cool guy. And, you know, it was before his eventual decline, which was unfortunate, Sad, yeah. but... Um, but that was at the, the young, the young uh, chipper, early Jocko. But um, yeah, but anyway, the thing that's really notable about the song Rain Dance is that, is that it's become a huge sort of hip hop anthem. It's been sampled 
by um, probably, I don't know, it's probably 20 or 30 records <laughs> at least by now of, um, of hip hop artists. But the, the big one that was the very first, first like major one was a song called Crush on You by Little Kim and Notorious Big that became a, a big video. And, and, and I think it's, there's something about this song that it's not only just a hit song, like it's one thing to have a hit song or a song that gets popular, but there's something that made people go like, whoa, that's really, what is that? That's cool. That's something special. And I think that's why it continues to have a life uh, in the hip hop community. Uh, uh, Mariah Carey used it on a record that she made about two years ago. It was, it was a, a single off of her album. And wow. uh, there's, there's been, uh, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. So I'm, I'm really uh, happy about it because, you know, here's an album that I made in, in uh, it came out in 1980. And it's still relevant, you know, people still listening to the music. So I'm, I'm delighted about that. I got to ask you, did they come to you and did you get paid for them doing the sampling stuff? Or did they just steal it from you? Well, what happened when I first heard it, I heard it on the radio and, and that's, the, and I didn't know anything about it, but it turned out that they had cleared it and they had done all the correct, you know, paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Because um, at a certain point, after being sued so many times, major labels would never put anything out without ha making sure that like every major label that has this kind of music, they have somebody that listens to the music before it goes out into the public and make sure that all the rights are taken care of. Cause if, if you do it after the fact, then you, you, you know, you're, you got, you don't have a leg to stand on. You I have know. to take whatever deal you can get, which is usually zero. I had a guy named DC Glenn on the podcast from tag team. Tag team was a big hip hop act and they had a song called from, Wump from Miami. Yeah. From Miami. Yeah. And he was telling me in the audience about how he would wake up, you know, <laughs> multiple days and just kind of hear his stuff being sampled. Nobody ever came back and ever cleared anything. This was in the early days of hip hop. So you're mm -hmm. right. Things have changed dramatically, but back then it was like the wild west. No, that was a massive uh, record. It was. That, whoop, there it is. I mean, it's like uh, everybody then it knows got that picked one. up by Geico in a Geico commercial at the Super Bowl, and he's had another well, life there, with there, that. There he goes. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. So you you've told me that you had a period of time from 1984 to 94 where you weren't recording as Jeff Lauber. You were doing kind of work behind the scenes. We've got some music from that period that we're going to play. I'd like you to describe what you were doing, and let's talk about the first song. This is Rhythm of the Night by El DeBarge. It was a big hit in 1985. I am pretty sure that Diane Warren wrote the song. Yeah, that's right. My, my notes here say that you were the arranger. You were on the Rhodes keyboards. You played marimba and synthesized <laughs> flute. Is that all right? Yeah, they're all, it, it was all synthesized, but yeah. We're all of the action, it's right there at your feet. Well, I know a place where we can dance the whole night away. Underneath the electric stars. Just come with me and we can shake your boots right away. You'll be doing fine once the music starts. Oh, to the beat of the rhythm of the night. Dance until the morning light. Forget about the words. So I moved to L.A. in uh, in 1980, approximately, 
And, um, and a guy that I had hired to play on my records, a uh, drummer named John Robinson, who's a famous guy. People, most people call him JR, John JR Robinson, who played, used to be a member of uh, uh, Chaka Khan and Rufus, and he played on a lot, a lot of Quincy Jones productions, including a lot of Michael Jackson records. And, you know, he, he was just becoming sort of the number one session drummer in LA. But he recommended me to a producer named Richard Perry, who, you've probably heard of who sure. uh, had a long career as a producer. He, you know, famous for pr producing and the Pointer Sisters and having them signed to his label. He, he produced hits for Leo Sayer and Ringo Starr. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. And uh, somehow JR recommended me, recommended me to Richard Perry as, as an arranger and keyboard player. And this was one of the, my first projects that I got to work on. And uh, so I got, I got the cassette of the demo which was from Diane and it said Diane Warren on it. And uh, I put the cassette in and, it, and I, her demo was very good. It was really, it doesn't, you know, it's a long time ago, but as I remember it, it's not that much different from the record. It had a lot of those same parts, you know, a lot of the, the marimba part and the, you know, uh, the form and, you know, obviously the melodies and chords and everything else. So my job as an arranger was, was, was minimal. I just wrote out a lead sheet for everybody. And I might have made some minor changes or something, but I, I don't claim to, uh, you know, have have really influenced the arrangement that much because it was pretty much the same as the, what, what was on the demo. It was a terrific uh, rhythm section. We had Paul Jackson Jr. on guitar, John Robinson, uh, Abe Laboreal Sr. on bass, a guy named Dan Huff on guitar, who's very famous now as a producer in Nashville and at the time was one of the top guitar players in LA and myself. And um, it was just one of those beautiful days in the studio. We just went in and we cut it and it, you know, just everybody was, was in a good mood and everything went really great. And um, one thing happened was the solo on, on the record. I took the solo, which is this flute sound and, uh, and Richard Perry said, Oh, well, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to replace that flute solo. You know, probably we'll get a trumpet or something. And then like two weeks later, he called me up and he said, hey, can you come back and play that flute solo exactly the way <laughs> you did before, except um, except hold, you know, hold the last note for two bars or something. I think he wanted to make that one change. He wanted wow. me to hold the last note. That's funny. But, um, you know, Richard's an interesting guy. He's really, you know, we, we don't have producers like that anymore in the business hardly because he was he was not a musician himself but he had a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of songs and uh he was just a real song guy he would listen he had relationships with with um publishers and songwriters and his uh skill was putting great rhythm sections together hiring musicians just shepherding the process of record making from a to z to make sure it's in the right key the right tempo but not a hands-on guy, not an engineer, not a piano player. Like nowadays, most most producers are the guys that are making the music, more or less. Yeah, he was one of the greats. Oh, and so after that, I, I met Diane. And I just thought, when I heard the cassette, I thought, like, this is such a good song. This has got to be like a brill-building writer. This has got to be like Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann or, you know, one of those kind of people. I was expecting to meet, like, somebody that was, like, 40 years old. Diane was, like... 20 21 or something she was just getting her career started this was really her first big hit and i worked her i worked with her for about a year doing her demos for her 
And um, I'm still friends with Diane. She's quite a character. I don't know if you know anything about her, but she's she's a wild person, like very uninhibited, very unedited. And, you know, she'll say anything that's on her mind, but uh, obviously incredibly successful. She's written so many hits. I mean, she's one yeah. of the big songwriters of our era. Okay, let's go to the third song. This one really intrigued me because it's a song that you did with U2, the, uh, right. the <laughs> Irish band, the, the incredibly brilliant uh, and huge band. And it's called Desire. And this is a 1988 Hollywood remix. So I want you to explain exactly what that means. And uh, my notes here say that you played synth bass, piano synthesizers and a drum machine so you, you kind of did it all well okay so by the by the end of the 80s I, I got hooked up with this little team of people that would do remixes and we were really in demand the remix thing was was a really big thing basically our main client was a guy named Lou Silas who was a uh, A&R guy from MCA Records and MCA at the time, their their R and B division was really kicking ass. They had um, Ready for the World, uh, New Kids on the Block, or not? Wait a minute, they have New Kids on the Block, New Edition. That was their biggest act. But Jesse Johnson, I don't know. I can't remember all the acts they had. Uh, Renee and Angela. Well, those are some ones that, that we that we work with uh, off the top of my head. But it was really a long list. But we were working for Louisville all the time. And so basically, a re like the main goal of a remix back in those days is they'd have some kind of an R&B song and then they bring it in and we take the 24 track tape and we find like the most important things from the tape that we wanted to preserve which were usually the vocal and then maybe if there was some kind of an instrumental thing that was a hook also we'd take that over and we'd copy that to another tape. And then we do a whole new production that most of the time would be like, you know, a quarter note kick drum, four on the floor, quarter note dance kind of kick drum. And we listened to whatever was happening in the dance clubs. We had a, one of the one of the guys was a DJ and he had all, like a big stack of 12 inch records that we would listen to every time we'd come into the studio of like the latest thing. Because it was one of those kind of things where the dance music stuff was changing constantly and you, you wanted to be on top of what the latest trends were we, we would listen to the latest stuff and we'd make a new version of the song that would be basically for dance clubs that would have that dance beat and then also we would make different versions like a dub mix which means like a dj in a dance club that's spinning two turntables the dub mix would have just like acapella vocals and acapella parts of the rhythm section and the drum beats and stuff so you could they could mix some of that stuff in when they're when they're DJing and um so we were really successful with that and so also at MCA was Jimmy Iovine and he was working with uh U2 on their new album and uh he he had this idea Jimmy Iovine was always a guy that was like looking past boundaries of of styles and and, and genres and somehow he had the idea that we should take this 
first single off the Rattle and Home album and make a remix of it. And then maybe it could get on pop radio and, and a lot more people could hear it. So that's how we got to do it. And um, but the really crazy thing about it, out of all the remixes that we ever did, we never, ever would meet the artist. They would just send the tape over and we would work on the record and that would be it. But for, for some reason, U2 was in town. They were still working on, I think they put the single out before the record was finished. Maybe they were still working on, you know, finishing up the album. And so those guys were there. So this song Desire, it has like a Bo Diddley kind of, kind of groove to it. So the first thing I did was sample all the drums, all of um, the drums from, from the tape and make it and put it into a drum machine to make it like metric. So everything works with a click. So we could put that, you know, quarter note click on it and it, it to get, take away the human feel to make it more, more of a dance record. So the drummer wasn't too happy about that, <laughs> to, put it, to, be, to put it mildly. And then we took the bass line, was the bass line like boom, 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 something like that. And I double it with a mini Moog and I double it with a piano. And when, uh, when Bono heard me double the bass line with the piano, he got really excited and he just was digging what was happening. So this song originally was only three minutes long. So he just decided to go back into the studio and write a few more verses to the song and make it longer while we were working on this thing, which was, which was pretty cool. I wanted to ask you that, you know, you, you got the artist in the studio, you're basically taking their work and you're kind of augmenting it. You're putting, you know, your touch on it. Right. And what I'm searching for is, did they like what you were doing or did they resent it? Did they participate? You know, what was the atmosphere like there? Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, I think, I think the drummer and the, well, the bass player never said anything. So I have no idea. <laughs> and the drummer pretty much didn't say anything, but he had kind of a sour look on his face. So I think he wasn't thrilled about what was happening with his drums, but the other two guys were really excited about it. And the edge was really excited about it. Bono was, I mean, for him to just want to like, you know, go in and write some more lyrics and record some more lyrics on the spot. That was pretty, pretty awesome. And, you know, this was a big project for us because U2 was, was gigantic. And this was a big album for them, too, because I think, you know, their trajectory was just going up. And this this was an album where they they recorded uh, some of it in, uh, you know, I think it might have been a double album, I think, or something like that. I know it was their first album that was a number one in the UK and in Australia, which I read. about. Oh, wow. OK. So you're right. It was a big album. So, yeah. So, so 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 they got really excited. And so, yeah, it was it was all real positive, a real positive thing. Good, you know, and it's positive. You know, they I, I do remember when they came into the studio, they uh they were asking where the Guinness was. I guess they're big Guinness <laughs> beer drinkers. So they wanted some Guinness beer. <laughs> I remember that, that, that surprised detail. me. That does not surprise me. <laughs> I guess what they that's what they drink in Ireland, I guess. You got it. Okay, <laughs> let's go to the next song. This is um a song called You Should Be Mine, the woo-woo song. I want you to tell right. me about the woo-woo part of this. This is Jeffrey Osborne from 1986. Yeah, and this was one of his biggest hits. And um, this was just another song Richard Perry produced. Um, Richard Perry produced, I think, the whole album. And, um, you know, since then, I've gotten to know Jeffrey Osborne. I mean, not like super close, but we've been on a lot of... Uh, festivals together i've gotten to you know and i know i know a lot of the guys in his band and um and you know and of course i got to meet him and 
get to know him a little bit while we were working on this record. But this was back in the day when drum machine arrangements, which means, you know, the drums come from a, from a drum machine, the, the bass comes from a synthesizer, the, the sequence, and a lot of MIDI keyboards, you know, particularly like the DX7 and maybe, you know, some analog like an OB8 and, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if like the emulator too it had, had, had made its, its uh, appearance yet. But, uh, you know, but basically that's how, that's, that was a modern record at that particular time. You know, you'd get somebody to come in and do all that stuff, and that was my specialty. So yeah, so that was basically it. I kind of played everything on the record. I can't. I, I think there might be a guitar part that I did, may or may not have played. I can't quite remember. <laughs> but uh, it was it was sort of an oddball tune. It had a real cool groove, and it was just it was sort of unusual. But it was melodic and it felt good and it's got a little bit of a sexual healing Marvin Gaye kind of vibe, I guess. But you know, it was a huge hit for him, and he, and he still performs it whenever he you know, he plays somewhere. You know, what's really interesting to me is you started out, you know, as kind of a classic musician. Okay. You were trained at Berkeley. You, you, you played so many different things. Then you went off into this other world that so many guys in your position would never have been able to get into, would never have been able to be successful in because it's, it's a very specific kind of world, you know, dance music and stuff like that and what you were doing. And yet you conquered that, which I think is really to your credit, because again, it's, it's so hard to go through on different lanes like you've been on. Yeah. I think, I, I think I got, I got lucky. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, some, sometimes it's just as simple as if there's a big hit record out, people want to know who played on that, who's on that record. And then, you know, so so obviously Rhythm of the Night being a big hit record, people want to know who played on that. So that really helped. And of course, I had a reputation before I got into the studio musician thing. But as I started to play on more and more records, you know, I was showing up on more credits and then it, it just kind of steamrolls. And, and, and then, oh, and then definitely the remix thing was huge because we just had stuff coming in. You know, we would do them like every like a couple of them a week. And uh, and some of those would get would get really successful too. Some of those remixes that we would do, but it's more than just the success thing. You you were you were good at it. I mean, you really knew how to do this, and it was so different from the rest of the music that you had been creating. So kudos to you that you were able to handle yeah. it. Well, I think you know the 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 um, you know just growing up and playing popular music and having and analyzing the music and then going to Berkeley. And they give you, you know, Berkeley is really a great place to go to school to learn how to, you know, there's, there's sort of a vocational training school. They give you an approach to harmony that is really, uh, you, you know, it's meant for modern music. It's meant for taking apart modern music and putting it back together and analyzing it 
and give you a very practical approach to understanding, you know, modulation, chord progressions, diatonic harmony. And I think that was, that was tremendously valuable going to, you know, even that one year at Berkeley. And uh, so I would, I would come into a, you know, a situation and if they didn't have a chart, I would write a chart. Once I had the chart, I was like home free because then I would just, uh, you know, I'd know how, what the structure of the song, I know what all the chords are. And then I could just be creative and find, figure out like what kind of cool sounds I could come up with to enhance the music. And so that's, that was basically how I went about it. Well, it worked. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. We got one more song for you. Now we're going to come full circle because this again is your newest album with Jeff Lorber Fusion, which just came out recently called Space Time. And the song that we're playing underneath this introduction is uh, a song called Chick, which you wrote yeah. for Chick Korea. That's very meaningful to me as well. On my newest album, which I am releasing one song at a time on this podcast, I wrote a song called African Nights, parentheses for Chick. So I wanted to give him the honor of, of doing a song for him as well. So tell us about your song, Chick, and about Space Time. Well, yeah, I mean, Chick, you know, I think when, when I started going to Berkeley uh, and getting serious about learning about jazz piano i think my my two biggest influences were chick and herbie and the problem was that i couldn't really just listen to what they did and figure it out it was a little too too advanced too complicated so i had to kind of figure out well who who are those guys listening to and so going back and listening to guys like horace silver who was a little simpler more basic that's how i eventually got to having more insight and more understanding of the way that those guys were playing but i just love um, I just loved Chick's, uh, you know, the, the early return to forever stuff blew me away. And I think after that, I heard now he sings, now he sobs for those people out there that haven't heard that record. That was his, one of his very early records that wasn't on a major label trio album with Roy Haynes and Miroslav Vitus. And a lot of people think it's the best piano trio album ever from anybody. It's a brilliant and, album. And, uh, that, that totally blew me away. So there's that, you know, there's that of him just being a huge influence. And then also, as I, I think I mentioned, when I made my second album, I actually hired Chick to play, to guest on my album, which really helped my career. And he was very, very generous and very gracious to do that. I had sort of developed a little bit of a friendship with him by writing him letters and sending him transcribed solos. And when he would come to Portland, I think I, I, I met him. I have to admit, he did try to get me involved in Scientology, which I sort of didn't didn't do but uh <laughs> but he was he's just a very gracious guy a wonderful person an amazing musician i mean just incredible if, if you if you really analyze like some of the amazing stuff that he's done in and he's another one that crossed crossed so many boundaries yeah 
the you know all the Return to Forever albums and the and and the Chick Corea solo albums. He he was like on two tracks where he would make the the, the band albums. Um, you know the probably the biggest seller of which was Romantic Warriors, amazing album. And then he'd always do his Chick Corea solo albums, which were usually with uh, Steve Gadd on drums. Who Steve Gadd, who he asked to join Return to Forever, but he didn't want to do it, <laughs> couldn't do it or something. Uh, and you know guys like Joe Farrell on flute. And those, you know that, those records were a little more jazzy and, and different. And uh, so yeah, so I was a big big fan. And as far as the song, of course, he he passed away recently, and it was it was a big loss. And um, I had a song that had like some you know some some licks that kind of reminded me of chick and i was very lucky to get hubert laws to guest on it who was uh someone that chick had a long um you know long time collaboration with playing on a lot of his records and uh so yeah so i'm 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 really proud of that one and i think it it uh i'm really i'm really glad i could pay homage to chick in that way that's terrific we've been talking with uh jeff lauber who i have said is a true superstar of music jeff you know this is the follow your dream podcast and i started it for people out there and there are so many of them that either have a dream and just never pursued it or maybe they tried to pursue it pursue it but it just hasn't been successful and i like to ask my guests like yourself who have been so successful what's the advice that you would give to a dreamer out there well i think um you know, everybody has these, 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 uh, opportunities that come by. Like I had that opportunity when, when the, the engineer asked me if I wanted to, you know, do some demos at a studio. And if you're ready to take advantage of that opportunity, if you've done your homework and you've, you've, um, gotten your, your chops and your musical understanding to a level where you could take, really take advantage of that, then, um, then that's that's that makes the difference of um, between somebody who who can really you know get the make make it take advantage of those chances and follow their dreams and somebody that might have a little more difficulty. So I would say, whatever your dream is, do whatever you need to do to prepare for that. Just make you know just uh, act like well, hey, I'm gonna my dream's gonna arrive in six months, so I'm gonna get ready and make sure I have all the tools that I need to. Um, to take advantage of anything that comes up that can help me get to where I'm going. So uh, that, that's how it worked for me, I guess. Be ready for your big break. I think that that's excellent advice. Here are the key takeaways from my interview with Jeff Lauber. Opportunities come to everyone in their lives. You've got to be ready to take advantage of those opportunities when they come to you. Be prepared. Now we're going to listen again to the song that I played in my introduction. This is my featured song for this episode, Spring Dance, from Project Grand Slam's 2012 album of the same name. I want to thank Jeff for being on the show, and thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Music.